and welcome to Space Chats. This week I'm talking with Claire Louise Amius, who will be bringing the masks of Afroben to the space in February. Hello, Claire. Hello, Bethany. How are you doing? Good. Did I say your last name right? More or less. It was more, I was, I, I slightly laughed because you, I could see your hesitation. <laughs> I paused for the thought of, let me get this correct. Um, so apologies. I, not at all. You, you pronounced it correctly. Yes, beautifully. <laughs> Amius, yeah. <laughs> to begin slightly further away from the show, what would you say a theatre maker is? A storyteller, I would say. We're in the business of telling stories, aren't we? And theatre is our medium. Uh, a painter tells stories through paint or charcoal or whatever, you know, uh, we tell it through performance. I think that's the, the nitty gritty of it. Yeah. I can elaborate on that if you like. But no, I think... no, that's okay. I'm interested in asking that just because some people answer that in a very personal way and they immediately jump into all the ways which they approach theatre or writing or whatever area it is that they do. And other people go the opposite and become very, very conceptual and start talking about theory and the meaning of life and uh, all those things. <laughs> I've done neither of those. <laughs> I suppose you mean, what does it mean to me to create theatre then, really? Not necessarily, but we'll go in that direction now. I think because I was an actor for 10 years before I just down the creating theatre route and I felt that the stories to an actor weren't necessarily that frequently out there and so that's why I decided at first I wanted to kind of dip my toe in directing tried that a bit I thought it's not quite what I want and then writing and I went back and did an MA at RADA which was a mixture of acting writing directing as we got to play and do all, all of those things and also a bit of dramaturgy so it was sort of the research element was definitely in there as well. And of course, that's useful as a, uh, all three mediums, writer, actor, director. And um, I think through those three elements, essentially, that is, if you're doing all three, and also the, then the fourth one, the dramaturgy, you're creating theatre. You're a theatre maker, aren't you? And I think, I like to think of it as a little bit like wanting to be like PJ Harvey or a sort of singer-songwriter. We don't sort of question the need to create lyrics and music and perform it ourselves. And I think to me, creating the show from its conception, through the writing, through potentially elements of the direction as well, and to performing it, it's a little bit like, you know, being like oh, there's old fashioned singer songwriters, you know, you're, you're creating your product that, that means something to you and hopefully through meaning something to you, it means something to your audience and expresses something universal. That's what you hope. If it means something to you, it will mean something to other people somewhere, at least anyway. Cool. Thank you. Sorry to start with the most enormous question in the <laughs> world. Masks of Afroben. This is one of two Afroben shows. Yes. I'm not actually obsessed by her. You wouldn't believe that, would you? <laughs> I mean, everybody just thinks I'm some kind of complete Afro-Ben uh, obsessive, but uh, I spent at least several months not thinking about Afro-Ben. Uh, <laughs> no, um, I, I, uh, it was actually when I was doing the MA, one of my tutors, Andrew Vishnevsky, almost sort of laid down the gauntlet. He said, uh, I've never really seen anybody do a, 
a one-woman show of Africa and somebody really to write one. One of you should write it. And I knew a little bit about her. And in fact, when I was at Bretton Hall, so I did a three-year acting degree at Bretton Hall, and I remember there being a play about Afro Ben. So this, you know, there's definitely been other plays about Afro Ben before. But I thought, oh, that, that was an interesting person and I should do some more research. And then I made it my final piece. I was going to do a one-person show create a one-person show as my final piece but as often happens you do some research and you find so much research and so many versions of the truth I was sort of overwhelmed with information I went oh god how can I do a sort of one hour one and a half hour show and have this this is too much you know and so I sort of did this I would say slightly half evolved kind of final piece which was sections of her plays I read all of her plays from that point and I read three biographies and I decided that what I would do is find all the autobiographical elements of her plays you know that anything in her plays that's sort of linked to something that we knew about her based on facts you know there are a lot of holes in her history so even the the top biographers kind of they can't quite agree to what the truth is because there are so many holes in the research and it's only recently that they've decided that Afro Ben was actually from Canterbury, born there, grew up there. There's a big contention over that for many years as well. Anyway, so I decided that I'd create this sort of montage patchwork of these scenes from plays that sort of told her life. And then I left it for a while. And then in 2015, I was part of something called the So-and-So Arts Club. So lots of actors, writers, directors. And it was run by a woman called Sarah Berger. And she held these little festivals so that performers could create their own work. And it was sort of around just at a time when I was kind of wanting to do that and create my own work. I'd already been creating uh, some projects with Pradeep Jay, who is the chair of the space, who I'm sure you know very well. But this came along, there was a festival called the Women in War Festival. And I suddenly thought, oh, I could choose just one section of Afro Ben's life with this. I could just choose her spying during the Dutch Wars. And this, you know, is fact-based. I'm not having to have too many gaps because this is actually quite well-documented because she was essentially doing a man's job. And so there are lots of letters, uh, you know, documents which state where she was, when, all of this stuff. That's why I created my one-woman show first was because of that, that festival. And it performed in that festival and it did got some nice reviews and it did a little tour of the country. It's a few dates at the Edinburgh Festival, dotted around the country. That was great. And sort of left it alone for a year or so. And then a friend of mine asked me to write a one-woman show for her. And I said, I can't give up my time to write a one-woman show, but I'll, I'll write a two-hander. And, and it will be about Afro Ben again, because I've already done the research. She wanted it to be about a historical character. And so I then wrote Oranges and Ink, which is sort of part two, if you like, that was sort of part two. So the Master of Afro Ben is the spying years, if you like, when, you know, Afro is quite young. And then the second episode, if you like, was a show called Oranges and Ink, which was about her possible friendship and her theatre years in the restoration stage. So it was kind of different focus. Um, so that's that, that was it. It was sort of a natural evolution. So I hadn't planned to do two shows, but it was actually, it was absolutely kind of part one, Master of Afro Ben, part two. Oranges and ink. I'm going to, sorry, I, I nearly leapt in earlier, uh, just in case anyone hasn't read the podcast notes or is unfamiliar with Afro Ben. Afro Ben is the first professional female playwright, or, or arguably, arguably so, 
so yes, re- real historical figure we're talking about. And yes, the spying element, I had no idea until I, I spoke to you and, and read more about, about your show. Um, well, the, the idea is, um, at the moment as well, the reason why the show's come back right now is because there is a statue campaign. Because Afra Ben is this incredible figure. So she's, she's, she's the first professional female writer, so not the first female writer. So that's specifically laid out in, in the show as well. But it's a, as a means to earn a living, she was writing. And she was very prolific. So she was seconded only to Dryden in the amount of plays that she was producing and having produced on at these two main theatres, the Dukes and the King's Theatre during that restoration period. So it was extraordinary in that she was the first professional female to be employed as a writer regularly, but also, you know, she's creating this real volume of work uh, and she's incredibly popular. And my question when I was doing the research was, how did she manage it? How did she manage that to make a career out of it at a time when it's almost, well, it's basically impossible, right? It's pretty much impossible. Most women who are writing at that point and have plays put on are women who are aristocracy or they've got some money. They, they don't need to, they're not earning money through it. And, you know, the, the volume is a lot lower because of that, because they're not having to kind of churn out lots and lots of plays just to eat, you know, and pay for their lodgings. And that's the question. That's why I've also, that was the, the reason why I thought the spying element was an interesting thing to focus on because it's it's life experience, isn't it? She's through spying, she's traveled the world. She's been in these very dangerous situations. She's had to negotiate very difficult positions, you know, in, in a foreign country, speaking in different languages in a way that women wouldn't generally be in that position in life. You know, and so this this wealth of life experience is almost it's, it's kind of fed her plays, you know, and allowed her to write about things that uh, a lot of women wouldn't really be able to write about. Going back a few paces slightly to when you did this enormous amount of, of research, and I know with historical research, you can sort of go on forever in an infinite direction, depending on what you choose to focus on. Not so much, because I, I understand uh, there were certain focuses for each play in terms of how, and that informed how you edited down the research. How did you find the tension between sticking to the facts and the facts dictating the story, but also framing a story for someone just dropping in for this hour and a half at the theatre? I think I was much more strictly trying to follow absolute fact with the spying stories and the spying element of it in Master of Afro Ben. And so it's an, it's an hour long. And I think that was easier for one because there's more information. And when you start to look at her life in theatre, there are a lot more gaps. So naturally you have to create more. So there was a lot more natural maybe joining the dots in a creative way if you like because there are these gaps whereas with the spying story we have a lot of information and because with the Mafra Ben focusing on spying there were just many more facts to hang the story off and so it was about just choosing which section to make a story out of so when you're looking at an entire life if you think about a whole timeline of somebody's lives I mean that is an incredibly difficult thing to shape a story shape story as or if you like whereas if you choose one chunk you can be quite specific I am telling the story of how she gathered enough experience to become a professional writer so enough experience of life and the contact and the prestige in court um, and the fame in court to become a professional writer when it was an almost impossible task for a female 
of working class origins, actually, to do that. Whereas with Oranges and Ink, there were a lot more gaps. And so I had no choice than to be creative from, you know, much wider dots, if you like. If we're doing dot to dots, the, the dots are much wider. <laughs> but Oranges and Ink, there's a lot less information. And there's a lots of possibly and maybes. And so that was based on a possible friendship between Afra Ben and Nell Gwynn. But maybe that's not true. There are some facts that show that they had connections and one of her plays is dedicated to Nell Gwynn, which is the famed courtesans. And so I sort of used and there's a lot of creativity in that. I think the focus of the Master of Afra Ben is, is definitely was fact first. And it took a lot of time because it was fact based. It took a lot more research and a lot more time to kind of filter, even in my imagination just allow it to kind of, you know, uh, for the story to emerge, if you like. And it's very difficult when I go back and read Janet Todd's brilliant book about the Master of Afro Ben, which was kind of the main text that I focused on, because I think I would have gone mad if I tried to incorporate all of the sort of three main sort of biographies of Ben, because they all disagree <laughs> about quite <laughs> fundamental things. So I had to choose one of the three uh, main biographies that I've been looking at. So I chose the very wonderful uh, Janet Todd's biography about Afro Ben to kind of mainly focus on, because I think I'd go mad if I didn't focus on one version of the truth based around those facts. And even within the biographies, there's a lot of possibly this happened, possibly that. And I won't go into details because I don't want to spoil the ending, how I chose. But there are there are certain elements, there's one element of it that is definitely a big gap that in the biographies was left as a possibly Afra did this. We're not 100% sure. And I chose to go with, let's choose that because that sounds kind of sexy and cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I get to create some characters which aren't based on men. And it was actually easier because the research, naturally, because you were talking about a male job at the time, being a spy, you know, and most of the people in the theatre were male. So a lot of the documentary evidence is about men. So it gave me an opportunity when there was a gap to then talk about women and focus on a creative female character that is very much based on the sort of female characters of Afro Ben's plays. And it was, okay, these, these women have come from somewhere. You know, they're very precisely drawn, these characters, male and female. So let's use this. This is like going back to my old Rada projects, you know, the sort of looking at the voice of the narrator echoing from their life into their works. And so I was kind of get this archetype, but I don't want to give too much away because he's my favourite character in the play, actually. But, oh, good. Um... People will have to come and see the play to, uh, to, to, for clarification. Um, so the next question I have is on a similar line, but I'm thinking about the physicality of the play and you as a, you as an actor. I mean, there's a certain amount I imagine you can get from, I mean, we have the, we have words that Afro Ben wrote, obviously, and the fact. So I'm imagining that writing the play, as you say, it can be quite fact-based, but in terms of translating that into something visual and embodying the character, where do you begin with something like that? Because it, it's a slightly impossible task, but it's something which has to be done. Absolutely. And I think this is about the filtration uh, process I was talking about so that you're not weighted down with the facts. So what I do, it was I would write a really bad version of a character monologue. So I, I become characters within it. OK, so I'm uh, I become her lover, uh, William Scott. I become her mother. 
I become other kind of spy masters, theatrical managers, all sorts. King Charles II at one point. And so I would write a really bad fact-based monologue, like just get it out, get it out. What are the facts that are in there? Let's get it out on the page and not care about the fact that it's just awful exposition. Right, okay, let's do that. Then what I'd do is I would get my tablet, my iPad, and I would I would record myself talking to the screen in character as I heard them, but not not even looking like I could even throw away this awful expositional version of it. And I would just then talk as if I was the character in that scene. And hopefully some of that exposition would get in there in a kind of osmosis rather than, you know, I'm going to make sure I slavishly get all these facts in. And so then when I had that recording, I would transcribe what I'd improvised in character, silly gestures, all all the voices, all of that, completely embodying it, improvised. And then I would look at what I had and then I would shape it. So it was very much a kind of write it, devise it, rewrite it and shape it so that it wouldn't, yeah, absolutely, because it could just... Yeah, it would just be terribly leaden otherwise, I think, as a piece, because anything based in history, you need to give the lightest touches to get the facts in and try and do it in the most interesting way. And I think usually the most interesting way is as the play goes on, it becomes more and more about the characters talking in the moment, set up the situation and narration, and then let's go into the situation and have them talk. And so that was my way of doing a sort of, a one woman performer writer workshop with myself <laughs> using um, the medium of video uh, just to kind of make it live away from Afroben, which you've you've said you're not obsessed with but i don't i don't know if i entirely believe that because there's a lot there's a lot that's happened with Afroben. but uh, <laughs> your other writing um, not all of it performed by you, not all of it a one-woman or, or two-woman show. How does that compare? Well, I have a have a new play, which hasn't been performed yet, but, well, not in its entirety. It's had a, an R&D, which we did over... The first one was just at the end of the first semi-lockdown, so it was all social distance and masks and all of that. And then we had a more extensive one earlier this year, the White Bear Theatre, and that's called Woman Behind Glass. And it's quite, so it's very different because it's, it's got elements of personal experience in it. And so that's why I'm not in it, because I think I'm too close to the subject matter. And yet, so it's about a couple who move in with the guy's mother. And the central characters are really the mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. So I think it's an unusual kind of relationship to, to centralise on, actually, in a, in a piece of drama. It's usually child and parent. And it's talking about dementia. So it's looking at the difficult relationship and also the, the position of women in family situations when that happens and whose responsibility is it to care. But also it's a ghost story. So it's looking at dementia and the loss of memory and what memory is through the lens of a genre piece. So it's a way of exploring the sadness and darkness of loss of memory for the the sufferer, but also for the people caring as well. And the mental health impact it has on them as well when they're caring for somebody who has this terrible, terrible disease. So it's, uh, yeah. 
hence not wanting to be in it, I suppose. But it's it's at the point now where it's almost ready to have a, an arts council application. Um, it just needs a, it's on draft ten, so it's getting there. Yeah. And in fact, uh, Mike had a look at it recently, which is very kind of him, gave some very good notes. Mike Carter, the literary manager in the space, yeah. So it's just sort of getting this last level of really finding the ghost story that's within there as well. I want it to be accessible because as soon as you start talking about, it's a play about dementia <laughs> and the terrible time some people had during this, you know, this particular part of their life, you're trying to find the universal story as well. That everybody understands and and trying to express in a universal way the trauma of it yeah that's it that's it and uh, so hopefully that goes well we're, uh, we're plodding on with that it's interesting that you say about finding the universal element to something especially when it's something that's also quite personal because I mean that I guess part of it is also drawing people in for this very specific place and time do you find that easier when you're in role, when you're performing your own work, or when, as you say, with this one, you've you've stepped back and it's a more of a, a shared experience? You're already opening it out a little bit by having actors performing those words. It's. I think you're writing for a slightly different purpose when you're writing for other actors, I think. And for instance, the two plays that I've written that I knew I was going to perform in, there's, there's more like this PJ Harvey singer-songwriter thing going on. I am this thing. I, I am going to show you this. Yeah. And it's sort of very visceral. Even though you're writing it, you're kind of producing a performance that you happen to have written down, you know. Whereas when I'm writing for other people, I, it's even closer to the story, you know, in terms of taking people on the journey. In a way, it's, it's very good because I'm able to step back from something that was very traumatic for me and you know the people in my life and you're able to go at, at some point you have to go no this is a story I'm not making it about me and my my history now I actually want to say something about that situation that other people find themselves in as well maybe not everybody I think when as a carer you talk to people it's actually quite you can feel quite isolated if people don't understand what it's like people don't unless they've been in that situation understand if you're literally living in with somebody with dementia it is you know it's very different very 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 different so you're shaping it in a different way and you're removing it from your just your experience it becomes okay how can I affect the audience how can I get them to understand but also tell the story what story do I want to tell and it delves into many different things as well so that's not just you know I won't say too much because I give away the twist in the end but um it, it it's also using photography as a sort of emblematic thing or you know uh, of of memory uh, looking at somebody's past through photographs so it's it's about all the different storytelling it's, it's a, the different ways in which we tell stories through life how do we tell our own life story we do that through photographs quite often now don't we here is my facebook photo story since 20 uh, you know uh, 2007 you know, 2007, yeah? This is my life story through pictures. Of course, it's kind of only a bit of it, isn't it? It's only the bits that we've chosen to create a story out of. It's the self-created story. And so it's also playing with those ideas as well. And I'm also doing that in a meta way, aren't I? Through choosing and picking bits of my story, but actually mixing it in with a ghost story, a genre story, all storytelling. Ha-ha! 
back to uh-huh. what I originally said. <laughs> this is very, very good circling back because I, I, I will ask you just one last question as we're sort of at the end. So very good, yes, interviewee skills of bringing the whole thing back to the initial initial thing. Speaking of memories, the question we always ask is what was your earliest theatrical experience, whether that's something you saw or something you were in? Well, apart from nativities, which frankly was not very much, it was probably about a line each year. Queen Beryl and the Romans. I don't know if anybody else, probably about my age, would remember the BBC radio play. Uh, they had a sort of, uh, we would learn songs and there would be a play script. And it was about a kind of version of Queen Boudicca and the Romans. And I played Queen Beryl. And it was a very visceral like memory for me because I was just like, I get to play this strong, amazing woman, you know, kinder <laughs> from history. Very funny. It was very kind of Blackadder, but for kids, kind of horrible history style before horrible histories was even invented, I guess. And um, yeah, I loved it. Well, do, do you remember I had to have bones tied in my hair, which I was not very pleased about to look like an oh. ancient Briton. So real bones? Bro- yeah, I think bones? they were boiled. They were boiled oh down. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's, this was my, yeah, this dedication, right? Yeah, that's, wow. Atten- attention to historical detail. This is where it's all come from. I'm vegetarian um, now as well, so, you know. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I, I also have to ask, Queen Beryl, is that Boudicca? Is that Boudicca? Beryl? Well, as in, like, yeah, exactly. Right, okay. She wasn't really yes, called it's... Beryl. I, I so just, Queen I, I... Beryl Boudicca. So I'm from Colchester, so I, I great familiarity with um, Boudicca. But... Beryl? But Beryl, I was like, Beryl, that's something I've never heard before in all these years. She wasn't. I don't think they cared very much about historical accuracy. <laughs> I think it just was a bit silly. Um. <laughs> that, that's an excellent early theatrical memory. Thank you. So The Masks of Afro-Ben, you can see it at the space on the 17th and 18th of February. Uh, there will also be a live streamed version, which will be available on demand for two weeks after the show. So thank you very much. Thank and you for having me. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Brilliant. See you soon.